you can be Jewish in so many different ways that, and I've been Jewish in so many different ways. I mean, when I studied the Kabbalah for a book and in Shanda, I studied with the, the Lubavitch and people thought, oh my God, are you going to become Lubavitch? You know, and I, at the same time, I was tutoring someone from the most reformed synagogue in Minneapolis with a very outspoken lesbian rabbi and it all it sort of combines at the end you know into the same thing which i think is judaism's strength welcome to the two tall jews show presented by the on this dangerous history instagram page and on this dangerous history.org we are the two tall jews and we are ready to go our guest today is neil carlin longtime journalist and author whose work has appeared in the new yorker the new york times and the minneapolis star tribune he, he is the author of such books as take my life please babes in toyland slouching towards fargo and augie's secrets Neil has also written two books about Judaism, Shanda, The Making and Breaking of a Self-Loathing Jew, and The Story of Yiddish, How a Mishmash of Languages Saved the Jews. Neil has also taught at the University of Minnesota and Augsburg College. Before becoming an author, Neil was a staff writer for Newsweek and Rolling Stone magazine, where he started writing about prints, which serves as the subject of his most recent book and our focus in today's conversation. This thing called life, Prince's Odyssey on and off the record. Neil, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, you guys. And what qualifies for too tall, tall, short? I mean, at 5'8", am I like a short Jew or, you know? Uh, I think that's me. That's, yeah, right. That's yeah, right in the middle. than yeah. most of our guests. Usually, yeah, it's weird. you look at like 60 years ago and the, everyone's like five foot three, literally, you know, what happened? Yeah. so thanks for having me on. Of course. Thanks for taking the time. So before we talk about Prince, I want to ask you a few questions about your writing process and career more generally. You spent 10 plus years as a reporter before you wrote your first book. Can you speak a little bit about the transition from being a reporter to becoming an author? Yeah, I'm trying to think because the first book I got offered was, I just moved back to Minneapolis. I was 30 and I'd been in New York for about 10 years. I worked for Newsweek for five years in Rolling Stone for four years. And then I got hired by the Minneapolis Star Tribune where I worked for four hours because after four hours, my agent who I'd never gotten a book offer said, there's this book, uh, the, the writer just got fired. It's no money. Would you want to do it? And it was, um, for this Henny Youngman, who people don't remember, he, he was famous as the king of the one-liners back in Broadway. He came up with the joke, take my wife, please. You know, the very same. And I literally had that. I still wonder. I had this great paying, secure for life job, or I could jump into the waters of the shark infested waters of book writing. And it was one of those moments where I, what you know, just you never know if you made the right choice. I, I mean, you've seen Isaac, my the torture I got. Yeah, but there's that the own there's that own kind of torture of sitting in an office, which I'd been in. And so after four hours, I quit. That's the shortest I've ever worked at a job. I jumped into the world of writing books for a living, and uh, it's. Uh, they always make a joke about writing books. You know, you can make a fortune, but you can't make a living. Well, you can make a living, but it's a little tenuous. So the difference is, you, I went back to work in 
2012 for I lasted five months at NPR and I was making a lot of money and all that stuff. But every second I was working there, I mean, I could see the clock go. I felt like I was dying. There's something about working for somebody else. I don't know. I get that entrepreneurial need, you know, of, you know, I probably work much harder, but I like, I'm proud of the fact that I've only had to write about, I've only written about what I've wanted to write about, even though the process is torturous. It's funny. I was moderating a Zoom conference with this guy, Eric Utney. I don't know if you remember the Utney Reader. It was, it was an alternative press collection of, that came out once a month. And I, I, I asked him, this was just four days ago, um, on Zoom, I said, how long did you work on it? He said, eight years. Turned out he, was, he married a Rothschild. You can work for eight years if you marry a Rothschild. You know, I mean, a true Rothschild. Um, and I said, was it tortured? Was it a torturous process? And he said, no, it's really easy. Uh, everyone knows you're tortured, Neil, and that it's torturous. That's what's endearing about you. And I wanted to go, in fact, I did say, screw you, Eric. You know, this is endearing to me. It's, I will find it. It was easier to write in seventh grade when I was just writing for free, for fun, to express myself. I could make myself understood better in writing than in talking because I zoom off on 20 different topics at once. And it just, for me, I find it never gets easier. I don't know. Have you found it gets easier? I mean, from writing columns for your paper and stuff, did you find that easier? I mean, you're, you're fast and you don't. Yeah, it was a bit different. I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, with me, I mean, I was like, on paper, I was a once every other week columnist in college. And then there were two semesters in which I wrote, I had a weekly column and sometimes I would write the day before, two days before. But I think it was easier because, obviously, than what you ended up doing because I didn't... I both needed the pressure of the deadline, but at the same time, I would have an idea that would sort of ruminate in my mind for a while. And so by the time I sit down to actually write it, I felt like the column would, would write itself. And I wasn't sort of torturing myself in that regard. But, but a certain, yeah, but at a certain point, yeah. I'm sure it's more about the topic than the act of writing, and then the topic yeah. that drives you, and then it's just exactly yeah every week. Yeah, some you know, I mean, I used to think that is there's something psychologically wrong with me. I mean, um, I know Isaac's father, and I love he's the way he he's an esteemed author and scholar, and say he's got a twenty page. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. If he's got something. 20 pages due on Friday and it's Monday. He can write five pages a day. Yeah, he can break and it down. I'll, I will write 20 pages the night before. before. Yeah. And it's not like I have, I'm goofing around and having fun. I'm ruminating. And it's also mm -hmm. like, I can't think of what I want to say until the last possible, yeah. you know, where the amount of time I have left is exactly yeah. the amount of time, where it's the thoughts aren't there. So, yeah. you know, I don't want to torture myself. And I, I don't think no. of myself as a masochist, but no. it's all style. But I wish, I used to say any writer who says they enjoy the act of writing is lying, but I don't think that's true anymore. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've known writers who say they really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, slightly, <laughs> slightly, slightly uh, switching gears in a way, ask a little bit about your, your path. So I understand that your father was a prominent Yiddishist 
uh, of sorts in the Twin Cities. Did you grow up with Yiddish spoken in the house? Can you speak a little bit about growing up Jewish in St. Louis Park and what that was like? Yeah. Um, well, my father grew up in a bilingual house. They spoke Yiddish in the house. Uh, he spoke English at school. So he wasn't a, a scholar Yiddishist, but he became sort of an expert Yiddishist. He was fluent and he was pre president of the Yiddish club and he went on all these Yiddish tours. And he was always, people were always bringing him letters from a hundred years ago that they got from the old country to translate. Mm. And he would do that and he kept very up to it. And I'm very happy you were, you, you, you picked us up from it, but uh, like the last trip I took to him, he just died last year was yeah. we went to the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst and uh, it's a good last memory, you know, he, he had it all together. So it was, it was good. And we grew up, um, he grew up very religious, uh, very orthodox. And we grew up, I guess it would be, it was conservative, but it was sort of, we kept kosher at home. I went to Hebrew school for 10 years. Um, which was four days a week. And then I also went to Saturday school and Sunday school and I tutored like a hundred kids for their bar mitzvahs. And, nice. um, and, and that one of them froze. I came closer to freezing at my bar mitzvah. I almost, I did for a second actually. So on that, on one hand, it sounds like I was like, whoa, you know, I mean, I knew all that stuff, but it was almost like I led a dual life. I mean, I wasn't robbing banks. You know, I kind of resent that time because I would just screw around in Hebrew school. I mean, it's one of those things that's interesting. If you read um, Irving Howe's World of Our Fathers and you read about Hebrew schools in 1900 with immigrants, they're the same now where everyone hates it and their you know, kids are teasing the teachers and there's mm -hmm. it's out of control and that's what it was like all these a students during the day would turn into d minus juvenile delinquents at hebrew school while everyone else was learning how to ski and play golf i was um at hebrew school or writing letters to should i like not make reference to your father or should i uh does it sound weird, you know uh only when you find it appropriate. Okay. Um, or with my friends, including Isaac's father, who was my best friend, writing letters to baseball players who'd been retired for 30 years, getting their autographs. That's how I spent my adolescence instead of learning right. skills. So it was very Jewish. And I didn't eat bacon till I was 21. Um, and I still remember it was the same week. I went out with my first non-Jewish girl ever. It was, I used to call it Neil's very good week, but now <laughs> it's been a very bad week. I don't know, you know, it's all perspective. You don't know, it's like, well, um, but I always lived sort of a secular, I played with the idea of being a reform rabbi. I thought I'd be like in those old Pat O'Brien movies where he'd be the ghetto priest and he'd go and He'd, you know, there'd be dead end juvenile delinquents, and he'd say, "Why don't you come down to the church and we'll learn how to box?" And I was, "Why don't you come down to the synagogue and we'll play the Ramones?" And and then I realized there was no Jewish ghetto anymore. I mean, mm. there were gilded ghettos, but I it, I never took a planned route for better and worse. I mean, people, do you? I mean, do either of you do you find like when you make a plan? Okay, I'm going to do this and then this. I mean, like in your life, it turns out that way. It never, some people it does. They like, I'm going to do this for three years and then I'll do that. Just for me, it never works out. I've sort of lived life backwards. You know, I started at 20 at Newsweek, then went to Rolling Stone. You're supposed to go to Rolling Stone. To New and then I've just slowly gone farther and farther um, 
more freelance, more whoever I am. I mean, when mm -hmm. I was, I had an office on 50th and Madison at, and I'm not bragging. I feel bad that at the same time, all my friends were backpacking around Europe and I wish I had been backpacking around Europe instead of having an office on 50th and Madison, you know, yeah. but we all live lives in different things. But yeah. I'm curious, yeah. I really, to, like, did you plan on whatever path you're on right now? Is it a path you've been on or does it even yeah. feel like a path? Well, I mean, Mine never felt I'm still like pretty it. young. I would say when you talk about like, like we're, I feel like we're just getting started. We both yeah. just graduated recently. You feel like when you, when you get to those certain points in life, you're like, Oh, like I made it, I graduated, but now it's like, no, now you're starting something new. So, um, I guess in my, from my perspective, you, you hope for the best, but you expect the worst. Very Jewish. So, yeah. <laughs> Cause no, expecting the worst. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, if something bad can happen. If 2020 will. is any indication of that, it was that where it's like how many plans were made for this year that were shut, like just like a yeah. simple trips or, uh, you know, simple weddings, like how many things have to change. So to, I think the important part is to like write down your goals, keep your aspirations, do what you can and the little things that you can, um, take advantage of the opportunities that come your way. But, um, you know, if it doesn't work out, then, you know, to have the backup plan ready or. Yeah. I thought my twenties were the time I, oddly, I worried the most about what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Yeah. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What, what's the right choice? Yeah. If I do that, well, I, I mean, so, I mean, no one, if anyone asks me for advice, which, you know, mm -hmm. first of all, I say, whatever I say, do the opposite. But, um, no, I just, if they're in the twenties, I just say, just relax. You can fall on your face and you're allowed to get up, right. you know, and you can get away with murder when <laughs> you're young. You know what I mean? But Literally, yeah. it's, it's funny that as I age, I wor I think I worry less, but I, I, I still worry. But it's funny that in, when talking about when, one, how one grows up, you really have to go back a couple generations. My grandparents, my father's parents never knew any English. They emigrated, they were peasants, in Russia, very orthodox, and they came with the world view really of if something bad can happen, it will, you know, you know, which made sense in Tsarist Russia. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't get too high because, you know, the Cossacks might write through them tomorrow and chop your head. That, that was a reality, but that gets hardwired into, uh, right. into some, you know, that's, as much as say that's not necessary now, but who knows? You see the rising tide. I, you know, I mentioned the Dreyfuses. I'm reading this fascinating book, whose title I can't remember, about four generations of the Dreyfus family in France, not just the general who is, you know, accused in the, mm -hmm. in the but going back a couple generations and forward, and you see, you know, the evolution of a Jewish family trying to become secular but not being allowed to. So I think a lot of my negativity, pessimism, cynicalism, cynicism, I'm very, I, on the other hand, I also feel like I'm very optimistic, very believe. I think comes from generations of it being hardwired in, into your family or maybe to, you know, I mean, where it really was, you know, things look good now, but the next czar may come. Now, German Jews, you know, always looked, it's funny how everyone has to, look down on someone even you know uh, the sephardic jews look down on all the you know yeah. the Jews, the ashkenazic jews you know um the german jews look down on 
the Russian Jews because they weren't educated. And uh, if you converted to Catholicism in Germany, you were allowed into the like literary salons. Mm -hmm. But they thought of, you know, the German Jews who then were in New York were the rich Jews who started all the department stores, the New York Times, started the reform movement, started building synagogues like churches. And the Russian Jews came over in steerage, didn't have any money, were very superstitious. And, um, but even among Russian Jews, they, you know, there were the Galicianers and the, everyone had to have someone to look down on. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Mayor, you want to? I mean, I look down. Yeah. Well, you're, you come from a split family, right? Galicianer and Ashkenazic, don't you? Yeah. So uh, you come from a mixed marriage. Yeah. But uh, it's, tr there are differences. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. Mayor, you want to? Yeah, sure. So you spoke about a little bit about your Jewish upbringing. To an extent, even though you said, you know, you tried getting away from it a little bit, it, it influenced the writing of, the, of your book, Shanda, and the story of Yiddish. So at what point in your career did you feel like it was the right time to shift away from that and then start writing more about yourself? Well, you know, I always, no matter what book it was, I put in, there was a Yiddish element to it. I mean, my first, first book about a vaudeville comic, they were all Jewish and they all started on the Borscht Belt. So there was so much Yiddish in that. In my base, I wrote this book where I followed a minor league baseball team for two years. And I had a chapter in there. There was one player on the team who was Jewish. And I thought that gave me an excuse to write about, he was a nice Jewish boy from Beverly Hills, to write about the history of Jews in baseball. And friends would say, what, what are you doing that for? And I said, well, I want my relatives to have, you know, one chapter to read. Mm -hmm. I did a book about the punk rock, you know, how a record company does that. But I was able to write a chapter about Jews in the music business. So no matter what I did, it still came back. Even my latest book, um, which just came out, which is about Prince. And um, I took him to see... Uh, this Hasidic rabbi a few times when he, you know, back in 2004. So there was a chapter about that. So I can't get away from it. And I live in Minnesota now and no one believes I'm from here because it's, you know, Fargo, the movie is like a documentary. It's like, everyone's like, oh yeah, there, don't you know? Mm -hmm. And I talk too fast and I talk with my hands and they ask questions until they get to, you know, I can say I went to St. Louis Park High School, which is, was the big Jewish suburb. It was the Shaker Heights, the, you know, Boston, what, what, what uh, Newton, you know, the, uh, that, that suburb. And, and you can see the light bulb go off over people's heads like, oh, he's Jewish, you know. Yeah. So you can, I can, if I wanted to pretend I wasn't Jewish, I, <laughs> I couldn't. I'm so Jewish. And yet for so long, I was drawn to the most, I went out with the most blonde women you could see and try, and I became such a bacon slut. I was just, you know, <laughs> it wasn't out of self-loathing. You know, it was the book Shonda, the subtitle was the making and breaking of a self-loathing Jew. And I'd say, and this is true. I might mean, say, I'm not a self-loathing Jew. I'm just self-loathing. And it's true. I never like was loathing of, your Judaism. Jewish, Jewishness. Yeah. It was just, I came from St. Louis Park was a very particular, peculiar, it was very shtetl-like. Everyone knew each other's business. And I think part of it was because it's in the Midwest. It was incredibly anti-Semitic. And it wasn't like in New York where the confident Jew, I mean, half the Jews in New York had Christmas trees. And if someone had a Christmas tree 
in Minneapolis here. It was such a, a, a it was such a shanda. It was like mm. gossiped about. It was sort of like this little tiny group. So and it it was stifling to me, and I and I had to get out. But I, I realize now as I, I grow up. So it was really kind of a split existence. But I always I never like pretended I wasn't Jewish. My college roommate for three years he's one of my best friends still he like pretended he wasn't jewish he, and he was german jewish his family had a lot of money they grew up you know it's like they came over four generations ago mm-hmm. and he wasn't from you know it, he wasn't faking it it just wasn't that big a a deal for him you know yeah. so i don't know what your backgrounds i mean yeah. when you go back a couple generations what kind of jews uh not your grandparents, but the generations before. And, uh, you know, uh, do you have a sense of what, ki- when I say what kind, I just mean religious, secular, uh, yeah. shtetl Jews, city Jews. So I am, my great-grandparents are exactly what you said. They're from Eastern Europe, like bordering with Western Europe. And then their kids, my grandparents, they grew up during the Holocaust, they had to escape. So that was, that's where my, that's where my family grew up after the Holocaust in, in, in Venezuela. And, and then Venezuela was a very, it was very shtetl ghetto like experience too. all the Jews in the same area. Um, and it was funny because it was like, you have to be very, you can't, you can't marry outside of the religion. Like you have to marry Jewish, but don't you dare be religious and you have to be Zionist, but don't you dare move to Israel. So, yeah. It was a very, it was, it was that, that sort of experience led to this secular cultural Judaism that everyone was a part of. You had a very small religious community. And then um, my parents, around the time I was born, they started, a rabbi came to Venezuela and he started teaching some of the couples. So they came back to it. Um, and now we're more traditional Orthodox um, at home. And um, in me personally, I'm probably the most observant in my entire family. Um, and yeah, it's, it's all personal at the end of the day. And we need the community, of course, to keep us grounded when it comes down to it. If you on your personal level, like you said, like the last thing you wanted to do was be in these Hebrew day schools. And I went through that too. I was so drawn away from it after, after Jewish day school to the point where I spent a year in Israel in a secular program. I didn't do anything observant in my entire time there. And it took Did a couple family go, why don't go to, it was interesting. No, they sent me, they sent me on that program. They oh, sent me on that program. Okay. She, they, they wanted me to experience it because they knew that I wasn't connected. They knew that forcing it wouldn't do any, any good. And they were never going to send me to yeshiva or anything. So they're like, we want you to go through this experience. And then if he wants to come back on his own, he'll come back on his own. And, and that's what happened. So cool parents. You know? Yeah. Right. But when you say they were Zionist, but they didn't want you to, was it like they didn't want you to leave the family or you don't leave the family. You don't leave the community. Like in Venezuela, in Venezuela, they would have the Zionist youth movements. They would teach about Israel. You know, they would probably send the Hatikva every day, but they didn't actually want you to move to Israel. They didn't actually want you to make Aliyah. Yeah. I mean, my great grandparents came from Eastern Europe, Russia, Poland, part of Ukraine, everyone, but one of my great grandparents, I have one great grandfather that was born in St. Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone else was born in Russia. Yeah, and they grew up religious, and my dad's dad grew up pretty sort of strict conservative. But yeah, there was, I don't, it's funny, I don't remember like, te- like hearing stories or my dad telling stories of how religious they were in the house. I know that my grandmother, my, my dad's mom, grew up less religious than 
uh, my grandfather did. I think he was reformer. My grandfather was uh, conservative. But no, it is interesting. And just how like, I feel, but I also feel like you assume with the Jewish community in the United States that they were less secular 70 years ago and they're more secular now because that's sort of the way of the wind right now. And you see that in the divide. You see that there's a dwindling conservative community and the rise is in reform Judaism and in uh, Orthodox Judaism. Reform Um, Judaism is getting so much more Right. Religious. I mean, yeah. right. True. Right. And I that also a, uh, a book, yeah. a, girl and a, a girl, I'd say she was 13. So I can, uh, it was a reform synagogue and she had to read as much Torah as you did, you know, when I was getting bar mitzvah. But it's interesting that Venezuela translates to St. Louis Park. And I mean, that's why I was writing right. about Yiddish. I said the subtitle was how a, a mishmash of languages saved the Jews and a lot of it, you know, there was no land that bound us, but well, you had, was Ladino spoken um, in Venezuela? No, it was probably within like the Sephardic community. Uh-huh. Because first, first Sephardic, Sephardic moved in the, like the early 1900s and then the Ashkenazim moved big, a lot of same, same wave that went to New York. Some of them ended up in Venezuela um, from Russia and stuff. And then after the war, um, a lot of Ashkenazi moved, and then in the fifties and sixties, a huge Moroccan community came because yeah. of, because of the like Morocco basically kicked out their Jews. Right. Um, so then, at that point, you had twenty five thousand Jews of like from everywhere in the world. It was a huge community. So it was in Venezuela was probably one of the better South American countries up until like the year two thousand. So. Um, was there a divide between like when a huge amount of Russian Jews came like in the 1980s or 90s there was kind of a you know the the local Jews were grumbling uh, there was definitely there was definitely that um, but it's funny uh, Chabad actually brought them together Uh better better than any other community because they built a nice building and they had a, a big Moroccan community and a big Ashkenazi community so to the point where they were able, they were able to actually, they said, okay, like we'll, they, they would pray together for everything. And then for the high holidays, we're going to separate, but the community was one. And that's great. It's, it's, it's nothing like I've seen here. Like here, it's always, you have the Sephardic synagogue and you have the Ashkenazi synagogue and you have the Chabad synagogue. And I guess in these places that are more, the Jews are more together because, because they're more different, I guess. Um, in a place like Venezuela. And right. unfortunately now the community is under 10,000. What happened? I'm sorry. I know you're supposed to be asked. It's just so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the political situation in the country went to shit. <laughs> like the, the, the socialist co- communist dictator took over, destroyed the economy for the Jewish people. It's not like they went after Jews per se, but there was vandalism. They broke off relations with the state of Israel. Um, yeah. Like, you know, like you obviously as a Jew, you're not directly connected to Israel because you're Jewish necessarily, but that's already like a sign for some people of like, if they're kicking out the embassy and who got shot on live television cursing Israel, then, you know, like a lot of Jews officially, they, they, they get scared and they leave. So that's what happened to us. So no, thank God. I don't know what I would do. Is your whole family out now? Most, most. Yeah. Either here or New York, Washington and Israel. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You want to pick it up the next question there? Yeah. So we want to, this has been great. I've, 
yeah. you know, Isaac told me that to an extent there would, there would be an element to this, but we do want to talk about your book about Prince. Oh, okay. So how did, how did you arrive? Like, how did you meet, where did you meet Prince? Was it a general assignment or, or at what point did he, did he enter your life? Well, we actually figured out, or he figured out, and I used to not believe him that when I was 12 or 13, I used to stay at my grandparents or nine and 10 every weekend. And they, he, they lived three blocks away from where Prince lived. It was the classic um, African-American Jewish ghetto. And my grandparents had lived there from, for 60 years. And then the riots of the 60s came. And usually in every city, the Jews fled to the suburbs. My grandparents refused. They, um, my grandmother, I didn't understand Yiddish, but she just said, we walked across Europe. We're not, we're not going any further. The only way we communicated was through wrestling. But um, I was working at news, so cut to 20, I'm 25 years old, and Prince has come out with Purple Rain. He's the biggest rock star on the planet. He has the number one film, number one song, number one album. And he hasn't spoken to the press for three years. And he said, I'm never gonna do it again. And he, two members of his band, Lisa and Wendy, who were in 19, I mean, in Purple Rain, uh, they, he, they came to agreement with Rolling Stone. Prince would pose for the cover with the two women in his band and they would talk on his behalf. And they just assigned me as a freelance piece to do this story. I was, I was writing politics at Newsweek. And so I interviewed them and we got along well. I didn't say, oh, can you talk to Prince? You know, mm -hmm. But they did and, um, and said, hey, he's okay. And they didn't even mention I was from Minneapolis. They didn't, and uh, I suddenly got paged in an airport. I was flying home to Minneapolis to visit my folks. And are you ever like, you're making, you change travel plans and you suddenly, I'm flying through Denver, not on a straight flight. And you realize no one in the world knows where I am. You know? And I got paged and I really thought, Who, who's dead? I'd never been paged before in an airport. And it was Rolling Stone saying, he wants to talk, get to Minneapolis. And I was already on my way there. So for two days, he didn't talk to me. He just checked me out. They had a big warehouse then before Paisley Park was built and he, where they'd rehearse bands. And then he just motioned me to his car outside. Uh, and we, he just put his head down and said, don't, I never was going to do this again. I was never going to do this again. And my edit, the editor of Rolling Stone had said, just get enough words out of him <laughs> so we can put Prince talks on the cover. It's funny, the needs of the media. That's all they wanted. And it, you know, and I was for half an hour, I didn't take out my notebooks, my tape recorder, anything, and just tried to set them at ease. And after like half an hour, I'm realizing, oh God, if I'd just been tape recording this, I'd have enough to put Prince talks, you know, on the cover. But we just got along and I have it on tape. It's a, which comes with the book. They have, they're, they're, they're relaunching it now for Christmas with, the tapes of us talking. It's so weird because I'm such a geek and like there's Prince talking in jive and then suddenly I'll break in with <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know what I'm talking about. I, yeah. And um, but it was as much about our joint like of pro wrestling and the Vikings and soul music. I grew up, my older brother was very interested in African-American culture and soul music. We'd go to concerts where we'd at the Minneapolis Coliseum, there's literally Minneapolis was 1% black in 1960. 
Um, and so there'd be like 4,000 people there and everyone would be black except my brother and me. And um, it became my birthday present every year to go to a, a, a soul concert. So I grew up with that. So it wasn't like I was a pretend, I never pretended I was somebody I wasn't. I can't pretend. But we just sort of got along. And he wrote me a, a letter afterwards saying, thanks for telling the truth. And we just kept, you know, this was at the height of his fame. And for the next 10 years, I was the only guy he would talk to. And it wasn't because I was the grooviest guy around or um, I eventually went to Rolling Stone to write. And I went there to write those long feature stories that they used to run about politics and cultural stuff. The only three music stories I ever wrote for Rolling Stone all the years were my three cover stories on Prince. And then I quit. I just was so sick of, not him, I was sick of, that's all I was, wherever I was. He's Prince's friend, he's Prince's friend, he's mm -hmm. Prince's friend. And I never talked about it because I didn't think we were friends. I mean, he was, he was a, I mean, I met much stranger people, you know, celebrity. Is this boring? Kind of boring. No, no, no. Um, and, but I didn't, friendship to me wasn't someone calling once a week for six weeks and then you don't hear from them for a year and a half. And that's what it was like. So it just, you know, them calling in the middle of the night, but we, we got along. So I quit the Prince beat, but I didn't quit him. And I did a couple, I collaborated with a couple projects uh, with him. And it was interesting. Um, Rolling Stone excerpted the, a chapter of the book and in the forward to the article they ran, it said their partnership yielded. And I thought, whoa, partnership? That sounds a little, and then I realized, no, we did do sort of collaborated on stuff. And then I just wanted to write about other things. And I think he respected that, that when he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004, which is when he did that incredible guitar thing of, well, my guitar gently weeps. Uh, he get, in his speech, he said, everyone should have a mentor and a friend who's not on their payroll. And I don't think he was talking about me, but I think it helped that I wasn't on his payroll. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he once said, I can make everybody, anybody famous for 15 minutes, which he could, but I can't make them famous forever. And they never forgive me. I thought that was very interesting, just about celebrity and stuff. And mm -hmm. so he was the most compartmentalized person I'd ever met. I mean, we all have compartments, you know, we act, this not like we become different people and we're also all contradictions in ourselves you know um we can be very generous and very cheap both in our you know souls and in our giving to people we can be totally loyal and totally disloyal and he there was every i i, I had this number i came up with i said no one knew more than 15 percent of him you know he kept it so separate mm. and everything he was he was only 15 percent um he was 15 percent jehovah's witness except he was 15 percent vegan except when he wasn't and he ate rib tips so he was so he kept everyone in com compartments no one knew who his other friends were when i finally wrote a little piece about him for the minneapolis star tribune after he died and i hadn't written a, a, his word a, a word about him in 26 years um i thought 15 people would come out and write the same piece and no one did. And what's funny is 
no one has, I kept, I kept thinking, no one's going to believe this. I kept thinking to myself, am I allowed to swear? Or yeah. I, yeah. Um, you know, uh, how do you write that? Which if you read, you throw across them and say, this is bullshit, you know, just these stories, but not one person has questioned the veracity of what I've written. And usually I keep very good notes. I mean, Isaac saw I had suitcases and, or Tilly was there when I had yeah. suitcases full of uh, stuff, but other books where I've have every single thing on tape, someone says he made that up. It's a good, when you, you catch someone, I don't mean to catch, but you get them in, you don't mean to get them in trouble, but they look, they don't feel like they come across positively. They go, that didn't happen. That was, that was, but for this one, that hasn't been a problem. And uh, it's been very, um, yeah, nice. It, it, and people realize it's not just another, and then this happened and this has happened in his life. It's, and again, I needed to read about it to realize, again, it was Rolling Stone's opening where they said, it's not just a biography, it's a story of this friendship uh, be between a writer and an iconic. And not once when he was alive did I call him a friend, ever. He called me, I mean, not because, I just thought it sounded so, first of all, I didn't think it was true. I hate reporters who conflate their importance with who they've interviewed, um, my friend. and. It sounded like, yeah, I'm friends with the Queen of England. You know, it just, it didn't, and it was, it yeah. wasn't until I'd written this book and four years later that I realized, whoa, it's, he was a friend and just, there's so many different kinds of friends and it was the yeah. most he could give. He was so compartmentalized. Some people aren't, I'm amazed. I don't know if I could have a party with all my, you know, if they get along, because some <laughs> are. Yeah. You spoke just recently about, so have your, your brother influenced you with respect to incorporate being a fan of, of black culture and, and black music. And you write a little bit about the history of blacks living side by side with Jews on Minneapolis's North side. How much does the black Jewish relationship uh, play into your relationship with Prince? That's a really good question. You know, not a lot. It didn't come. I mean, I took him to see a rabbi, but he was looking for spiritual stuff. You know, we didn't talk about it that much. I think it was more the same neighborhood. I knew the Dairy Queen, you know, but he always had in the revolution, his original band, um, three, there were two Jews in it. And then later he went more and more towards black music, but it never really came up. He was very used to Jews, the record company people were, he was, and they were very loyal to him and let him do what he wants. So he had no anti-Jewish bias or anything. And, I didn't, it really didn't come up. I know that sounds no. strange, but uh, he was very, he had a very deep black consciousness, which didn't, he gave Spike Lee the money in 1993 to finish Malcolm X, the movie, huh. you know? And his last record, his 39th studio record, had the song Baltimore about Freddie Gray, who was killed. And I used to say, I'm so glad Prince can't come back from the, dead because he'd die again if he saw what was being done in his name. But after the George Floyd riots, I wish he could have come back because I think he would have given a soundtrack to that. And I don't mean a hit record, da da da. Yeah, yeah. He would have made, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, he went to Baltimore. He not just did a song about Baltimore and the police. He did a, he did a benefit concert in Baltimore. And get, it may have broken his heart and killed him again, you know, yeah. what happened in his beloved Minneapolis. But I wish we'd had I, some, 
he would have had a new record out in a week. And it, I think, I just wish that had been there. As it is, I don't, you know, what happened was in the 60s here is what happened all over the country. There was sort of a coming together of African-American Jewish interests. And then there's this slow breaking apart and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, yeah. I would yeah. say there's a lot of external forces that want to pit us against each other. And it, it rarely comes from within. And that's the sad part because there's for, for the most part, a lot of, it's the same thing here in North Miami beach. It's predominantly Jewish and like Orthodox Jewish and black community crown Heights in New York. As you mentioned in Minneapolis, I'm sure it's, it's like that all over the country because for a while, right. Jews and blacks were told where they couldn't live. So they kind of ended up together. Right. They had a lot more in common at that time in the sixties. So it was Joshua Heschel marching with Martin Luther King. So it was more, it was, there were more examples, I guess, of that unity as opposed to now it's like, we're missing that. And it was definitely like, in the summer, the anti-Semitism from some some big name uh, black celebrities was, and also, right, you also had some positive with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and um, Nick Cannon's Teshuva, you can call it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's sad, and but I, I think we can we can learn from this time period, right? Yeah, yeah it, and it's so hard because you see what Ice Cube did in Twitter, and it's yeah, like, oh exactly. my god, this is horrible. But I just watched Barbershop again. And not only was it hilarious, it had some really good messages for the African-American community. You know, um, Louis Farrakhan is, yeah. we, we don't have to discuss what he is, but there is, there, there's also a message that appeals not to, you know, why can't we say, and yet we can look and Trump had all, so many of his enablers mm-hmm. were Orthodox Jew, you know, not Orthodox right. Jews, I don't mean to, or or Jews, I used, yeah. I invented this thing for the for Passover a few years ago, uh, at the Seder after the drops of wine. For I started, I did it as a joke, but people have liked it. Um, you know, the the, the ten plagues. The, I mm-hmm. call it the calling out of the Shandas, and it's like you know, um, Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> Gary, uh, you know, and, because That's I true. think. In, for all races, we have to be able, not races, ethnicities, call out, you know, if we expect people to call out Louis Farrakhan, we have to call out those amongst ourselves, too, you know. Um, yeah. And they say the biggest anti-Semites are Jews. Um, it's, 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 Historically, yeah, it's Karl Marx, actually, yeah. is oh, he's, that, considered yeah. the biggest anti-Semite, and he was Jewish. Yeah, yeah. So we're sitting with Neil Carlin, journalist, author, and his most recent book, This Thing Called Life, Prince's Odyssey on and off the record. You can find a copy of the book on Amazon and your nearest bookstore if it's open. Isaac? Uh, we're going to, yeah, we're going to, uh, moving right along here. Uh, while much of your book chronicles your relationship with Prince, while reading it, I also got the sense that the book is equally an exercise in renewing a relationship with your past self. How much of writing the book involved hashing out old demons and making sense of the writer you were 30 years ago? Well, that's, that's a great question. And again, no one is asking. I've sort of brought it up in different things, but after a, the first year after I got the book assignment, I mean, the pub, the pub uh, signed a contract, I couldn't listen to all the tapes I had of him. I'd never listened to them and I couldn't read anything I'd written about him. I just read every other thing and I couldn't listen to the tapes because 
they start in 1985 when I'm 25 and he's 26 and they go forward because not only did I hear ghosts of him, I heard ghosts of me and I could hear my own excitement and I wanted to give me advice, like stop going out with her. Don't do the, you know, and it was, I would hear ghosts and I didn't have to come to terms. I just had to, it's kind of scary when you can literally hear your own voice from half a lifetime ago. And it, sort of sounds like you. I mean, did, did, didn't that sort of sound like me on those tapes, you know? Yeah, no, no, it's it. A younger version. Uh, yeah. It's, um, and I came to peace with it. And then I finally, my place burned down and I lost everything I had except for a lot, some baseball cards at my parents' house and all my Prince tapes and notes, which were on in my, I put them into my computer two weeks before the fire. And I, I wasn't home when the fire broke out. And the only thing I had was my backpack with my computer. So the book was saved and just people came together to sort of save me. Uh, I, I was burned out of everything. And it was sort of, I mean, I don't believe, you know, people talk, it was sort of like Prince going, I don't believe he, he was, but like focus on me, focus on the book. I wasn't going anywhere. And suddenly I just dove in and for three years just lived this thing, but I wrote like eight drafts. And uh, it was, it was torturous, but it was good. It put an end, it, for one thing, it, it got me back in touch with who I was back when, but it also allowed me to move on to a next stage, which I don't know, I feel is a, what it is. It feels very open and good, but I had to sort of, I went through a rough decade, just a lot of stuff happened personally and and professionally. And so just getting it out and getting it published was a big milestone and whether it did well or not was, and just sort of amazingly it's, it's done pretty good, you know, okay. So, um, but, and I have to remember to be happy with that, you know, that the act itself is what's important. But as to your question, I really got in touch with all stages of my life and I can see I am the same person. Hopefully I'm a better person. The rough edges have been sanded off. I've had 400 years of therapy, you know, I mean, but I can still sort of feel that 25 year old. I can still feel that seven year old in my baseball card, you know, and um, uh, we were going to talk a little bit. I mean, I, I, I brought it up. I mean, one way we express Judaism when growing up, I went to, I went to Camp Ramah where we were literally putting on tefillin in the morning at camp and had Hebrew school at camp. And people express their Judaism so differently. I keep putting in my books about baseball and punk rock, but I also have, I have truly, I think the world's largest collection of Jewish baseball, football, basketball, Olympic chess cards and memorabilia. And it started off as this kind of joke, but it's grown into this thing where I have I express part of my Judaism that the way some people are religious Jews. Some people are, it's about cuisine. It's Jewish cuisine. Some people it's about comedians or the, just they're Jewish culturally. And I've chosen this one area where it's become sort of like an important, not important like to the world, but places want it, you know, cause it, it shows from 1880 to now America and also other places, you know, um, the assimilation, in a, in a positive sense to different cultures. It was one of the ways they did it. Um, Yiddish is an interesting example too of how Jews assimilated to whatever land they got kicked 
when they got kicked out of the land. They, they've counted 24 different religions. I mean, 24 different languages yeah. that are found in Yiddish. Like the word oh. daven comes from Latin, you know, from the Catholic, which is mm. what? And it's divine, the word divine. <laughs> and the word bench also, mm. you know, it's a, <laughs> comes from Latin. There's one, I mean, the joke goes that they found a 25th one, American Cowboy Western. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Hold up the hands, please. You know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a mix. It's, it's a mixture of everything. And that's, you can be Jewish in so many different ways that, and yeah. I've been Jewish in so many different ways. I mean, I've been Jewish in a, a when I studied the Kabbalah for a book and in Shanda, I studied with, the, with Lubavitch and people thought, oh my God, are you going to become, Lubav you know, and I, at the same time, I was tutoring someone from the most reformed synagogue in Minneapolis with a, very outspoken lesbian rabbi and it all it sort of combines at the end you know into the same thing which i think is judaism's strength right when you am i babbling am no I, no i mean you. when i explain i was a writer in residence they called it at a at a ukrainian orthodox church and the ukraine is one of the most anti-semitic areas in the world and the president wanted someone to come every once in a while Every like how on Easter I'd come and explain Passover. On Christmas I'd come and explain Hanukkah. And on Hanukkah, I mean, still I tell people, you know, it's fifty three to fifty one BC that the Mac is the only war the Jews didn't get their asses kicked in till nineteen forty eight. And yet everyone who kicked their asses, where are the Moabites? Where are the Babylonians? You know, I mean, it's everyone who, you know, it's it's astonishing yeah. and. Uh, we lost every war for 2000 years and yet we're still here and the victors aren't, you know, and uh, the last, you know, the, the, it's Hanukkah as we're speaking. And the lesson I told them was of, of Hanukkah was, you know, the Maccabees broke apart, not because they lost a war, because of internal dissension. Right. And I, and I said, the, the lesson is don't go into business with your family. You know, this is <laughs> Joe, cause they were, you know, a brother, you know, but yeah. uh, it's, I think this being able to meld is is one of the reasons we've been able to hold together. And I've seen that in my own life. And I could remember as I listened to these tapes, the kind of Jew I was at different times. If that makes yeah. any sense no. whatsoever. Yeah. No, 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 we've said before that a different kind of Jew at different Judaism times. I mean, when you look back and you see yourself as I was this kind yeah. of Jew or that kind for of For me, for sure. Like I, I had a black hat at my bar mitzvah. <laughs> like, because yeah. I was super... I was very involved with Chabad, and I was wearing it because I thought it was cool. Like I wasn't wearing it for the right reasons, I guess, because it's it's an it's it's an element of honor. It's like an extra keeper, I guess you could call it. Um, but for sure, you know, Judaism is super nuanced, and that nuance leads to all these different sorts of expressions. And like I said, at the end of the day, the older you get, the more you realize that it's a personal relationship between you and your family, or you and God, or you and your community. And however you want to express that relationship, so long as, you know, you're being a good moral person, dude, do whatever the hell you want. You know what I mean? Like, who cares that you eat bacon? This is me personally. And I, I don't come close to bacon also because I don't like it. But, like, we, we get stuck on this. And we spoke to a rabbi. I'm sure you know Rabbi Manus Friedman. He's, oh, yes, yes, yes. So yes. He, we spoke to him and he, he had, we had him on our show. It was awesome. And he told us that, you know, Judaism isn't a religion. And a lot of people are confused about Judaism because they see it as a religion. 
And so we have all these different rituals that, you know, it seems like, oh, if I don't do this, does that, does that make me not Jewish? It's like, no, you're still Jewish. You could be atheist and you are still Jewish. I actually asked him a question. He's, he's in a book of mine. I said, I didn't ask him a question. I said, Rabbi, I think I'm a bad Jew. I think I just eaten a cheeseburger or something. I, was, and he, I remember he said, it doesn't matter if you're a good Jew or you're a bad Jew. You're a Jew and we're stuck with you. You know, and I, I thought that was a great. <laughs> yeah. Isaac, great the line was, we're not good at being religious. It's oh, yeah, never yeah about exactly. Being, yeah. 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 And, and we're stuck with you. I thought that yeah. was yeah. Yeah, you should not focus on, on trying to be religious. It's the, yeah, no, that, without diving too much, too deep into that specific podcast, that episode, he spoke about the role Jews have played in sort of being irresponsible when it comes to treating Judaism as if it's a religion. And it's incumbent upon Jews, upon 21st century Jews and just Jews in general to spread the faith in a way that separates it from what it is not. Can um, I Google that? I'd love yeah, to hear. Yeah. What no, we can. Oh no, we can. We can absolutely send you the link. Oh, uh, that would be great! I yeah. would love to hear that. Yeah, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google yeah, Podcasts, wherever, and then also YouTube. Uh, yeah, we put up the clips. So just a couple more uh, questions while we have you uh, here, Neil. Uh, Going back to Prince, getting back to Prince, uh, was part of Prince's genius, uh, his self-awareness, was his searching, the constant mystery, giving different versions of the same stories, blending fact with fiction, was it all a way to fend off loneliness? Yeah, I think so. And I don't think there was a lot of self-reflection. It just, he came from a broken, you know, I asked him at first, why did you tell so many different stories? You know, lies to journalists. He said, I wanted... I teased them because I wanted them to focus on the music and not the broken family that came from a broken family. And he didn't just mean a divorced family. I mean, my, I come from a broken family. My grandmother divorced my grandfather on the, which was such a Shonda in the 1930s, you know, it couldn't be worse. And, um, but he meant literally a broken family. And um, I think it gave him part of his genius in that it gave him the drive. His father both, broke him and gave him the drive to express himself. So yes, it is. But I wish he had been happier. You know, I think it, I start with an epigraph from Albert Einstein saying, um, I don't have the book right here where it's something says it's very curious to be both um, so universally recognized and yet so lonely. Um, it's the first. It is strange to be known so universally, so universally, and yet to be so lonely. Yeah. So it was, and he was a genius. I wouldn't wish right. geniushood. I mean, maybe you guys are geniuses. You're both obviously very, very smart. I would not wish genius on you. Know, um, it's a ter- It separates you from people. You know, it it does. So I do think Isaac. It was. It was part of his genius, but he also had the talent to play 29 instruments. So um, wow. I think just being disconnected from people isn't enough. Was Prince aware that that ability to have a mastery of 29 instruments, did he understand that that was unusual or was part of, or was he, was he blind to his own talent in relation to other musicians he associated? No, he was very aware that he was a genius and it's, 
he could play any instrument better than anyone in any band he had. He could play drums better. He could dance better. He could play the electric guitar better. And, you know, that, that famous thing at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he's just doing a guitar solo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and that gave him part of his cockiness. And it gave him also one pitfall for genius, for some geniuses. They think they're a genius at everything. He thought he made great films. And maybe in 30 years, we'll look back at, you know, these films that were laughingstocks, you know, at the time. But he knew when you can play, it, and it made him mad at first when hip hop came along and people who couldn't play any instruments and were sampling his music were having number one hits mm. and he couldn't hit the charts playing 20, you know, people who didn't know anything. I mean, didn't know one instrument, the flutophone. Um, and that's when he was really angry. So I do have one question and I think we'll, we'll be wrapping up. This is personally because, you know, my, pardon my ignorance, but I was, I wasn't the biggest fan of Prince. Just, I don't know. I was never introduced to that sort of music. Sorry, and to was me, yeah. from the outside, right. From the outside, it seemed, oh, he's just like a different Michael Jackson. And maybe because they dress the same, maybe because they look similar. Um, but I can't even tell you that their music is similar. I wouldn't say that because I don't know if that's true. But why, why does it seem like, and my dad, when I told my dad that we were having this interview, he's like, oh, Prince, he's like kind of like Michael Jackson. And I, I, and I was like, oh, so we both had that thought and neither of us have the knowledge to have like a real opinion about this. So why, why does the outside world see it that way? Yeah, I mean, I think if you just read the two Wikipedias, actually, I mean, Prince, yeah. Michael Jackson didn't play any instruments. Prince played he was that pop. Prince wrote his own thing. I think Michael Jackson was just... In 50 years, I don't think we'll remember Michael Jackson the way who was famous 50 years ago, um, yeah. you know, Rudy Valley or, you know, but I think Prince will be remembered. His music, we haven't caught up to it. And he played every, he played 29 different kinds of music. He, cro he crossed cultures and, uh, and also he wasn't this deviant mm. person. There were no civil suits hanging over his head when when he died and um, right. he was a creation of, he was a showbiz creation he was born like that prince was a five foot two african-american male at 14 who was kicked out of his house without a dime in his pocket in the whitest city in america and he became what he became and he was constantly changing purple rain sold it's now sold 25 million copies wow. he could have come back and done that again but he 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 wanted to change. I think he will be remembered in 50 years. And I think they'll be writing biographies then. And what I wanted to do with my book was, I, I know it's too soon to write a definitive biography, but at least these quotes are real. These, this is real. And a, by then, hopefully, or, or, I think there will be. I don't know. You know, um, People don't know Jack Benny the way they should. You know, mm -hmm. And he was the biggest star. But I think he'll be remembered. You know. Great. Well, thanks very much and good luck. You, you're on once a week then? You do? Every other week. Once every two weeks. Every two weeks, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. And uh, I look forward. I'll look up and see who your guests have been. I, I'm, I'm honored to have been asked. You know? Of course. Thanks for coming on. And All right, wish have a good continued day. success. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.